Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute. I'm really pleased to be here and to have the chance to talk to you about, about Syria, about Syrians and their refugees. Um, from the title, you can see that I'm going to go uh, not too far back into history, but I'll just... Uh, say a few words about how this book came about. It wasn't a book I really wanted to write, um, but it was one that I was encouraged to write because of my uh, several decades long interaction with Syria and Syrians and uh, my exploration of what I called local cosmopolitanism or local conviviality, which struck me as really characterized the country um, and was very obvious in the cities, for example, of Damascus and Aleppo, where uh, just a stroll through the city, um, if you were alert to the difference in dialect and languages, you would recognize that you were sometimes talking to um, uh, somebody from uh, whose parents or grandparents came from Uzbekistan or from Ossetia or from Georgia or from Kosovo or Albania or many different places, uh, all living side by side and somehow, I won't say celebrating the other, but certainly tolerating living next to people who had different backgrounds and different histories. So that's where the book came about. But I also wanted to, um, you could say, punch back a little bit at what's been written uh, about the Syrian humanitarian crisis, especially since 2015, um, where particularly within the EU, there have been strong efforts to contain the displaced from Syria within the region, uh, particularly amongst pol politicians and analysts in Europe and in the US. In fact, a book that came out uh, in uh, at the end of 2016 by Alex Betts and Paul Collier called Refuge, um, tried to bring together cases from other parts of the world, particularly from Uganda, to show the West how containment in the Middle East region could work. Well, what I hope to show you in this talk is that the integration of refugees and migrants in the Middle East has a very long history and that the region doesn't need to take lessons from other parts of the world. They're doing very well without. So one could almost say as well that the 1951 United Nations Convention on the Status of Refugees, uh, which attempts to introduce a rights-based approach to dealing with refugees in this particular region, has been unsuccessful. And I would say unsuccessful in the fact that so few of the Middle Eastern states have actually signed that convention. Um, and that probably has more to do with the fact that providing sanctuary or asylum in this region of the world is often regarded as a duty and an obligation on individuals, on families, and on the state itself. In this case, I'm defining duty using the Arabic term of karam, which is the, the duty to be generous to the stranger, 
or in this case, you could say the refugee. Some people have also linked that with uh, as an associated concept of sharaf, improving your sharaf through your karam. And there are other concepts like um, thawab, merit, and so on, that are all part of that duty uh, to uh, be generous to those in need. So I'll just uh, um, throw up this cartoon for a minute, which appeared in The Economist two years ago, um, showing, uh, if you can read some of the text at the very bottom, uh, one of the observers is saying, Turkey and Russia are now squaring off. And the other person is saying, how can you tell? Because you have so many different sides fighting with each other or against each other. But understanding the alliances and the coalitions and forced migrant refugee flows um, means uh, grasping the historical context. Today, Turkey and Russia appear to be on the same side, particularly as it comes to their determination uh, to control the northern border of Syria, uh, but also to prevent Syria from being carved up. But what I want to show you is that for a very long time, starting from the 19th century, Turkey and Russia, the Ottoman Empire and the Russian Empire were actually on opposite sides. And that association had a long historic roots and was derived from the Imperial Russia's campaign to extend its borders westward and to have a port on the Mediterranean. So Russia is still extend, trying to extend its borders westwards, but now it certainly does have a port on the Mediterranean. However, in the 19th century, these campaigns resulted in something that is often forgotten about in history of four to five million people, predominantly Muslims, being forced out of the borderlands between the Russian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, forced into Anatolia and then into that area of the Levant that we call Bilad Sham or Greater Syria. So what I'll try and do, I might speed up in certain areas and then pause to say a little bit more in other areas. I will try to historically contextualize Syria as a place of refuge for forced migrants starting from the middle of the 19th century. It's a certainly was a, a become a defining feature of life in the Middle East, uh, but the pattern of flight and migration that we're seeing now and the places that people are seeking refuge, I have argued uh, in this book and elsewhere, have their origins in the millions of displaced social groups on the borderlands between Imperial Russia and the Ottoman Empire at the end of the 19th century. So uh, what we're seeing today can be understood when you recognize some of the social some of the social capital, some of the kin-based um, associations that remain in these borderlands. So I'll talk a little bit more about the way in which the 19th century and the 20th century was a catalog of displacement and dispossession of millions of Muslims, but also Christians and Jews from the borderlands of Russia and the Pale of Europe, uh, finding their way in the Levant. In fact, uh, one a modern historian, Justin McCarthy, has called this period between 1820 and 1920 in particular, the ethnic cleansing of Ottoman Muslims and Jews. This then during the interwar mandate when France held the mandate over the Levant between 1920 and 1946 was a period when you could say was the formalization of Syria as a refuge state when all of these forced migrants were granted 
citizenship and became integrated, but not necessarily assimilated into the country. This policy continued with the early Assyrian Republic and uh, was uh, carried on uh, with the uh, Hafez al-Assad and Bashar al-Assad uh, regime. Now let's look at that history. I throw up this map just to remind some of you uh, of the extent of the Ottoman Empire in uh, the 19th century. From the period of around 1790 to 1890, the Ottomans fought against the Tsarist Russia. They fought six wars. All of these conflicts were about borderlands, and they all stemmed from Russia's desire to extend its borders west. The Russian Empire won all except for one of these wars. That was the Crimean War, which I'll talk about in a little bit in a minute. But the result of each of these wars was major and minor alterations of the border, but forced migration of populations caught in the crossfire, mainly to begin with the Crimean Tatars. I don't know if I can... Crimea was not part of the Ottoman Empire, but this is the, where the Muslims uh, first were forced out of and began to spread. So what does that have to do with Syria? Well, when you look at the map, it clearly shows the region that we know of as uh, Greater Syria or Belayda Shem is really in the middle of the Ottoman Empire. And it was the region in which, if not the first wave, certainly the second wave of forced migrants ended up uh, finding um, uh, solace, sanctuary, refuge, and eventually reintegration. So as the Ottomans lost control ever, uh, ever more of its uh, borderland territories, particularly in the Balkans, it then turns its attention to repopulating and reinvigorating the Arab provinces uh, of the Levant. This willingness to receive those dispossessed from the edges of the Ottoman Empire then helped shape the modern Syrian state. So let me just go through some of these migrations. So I mentioned earlier the, the Crimean War of 1853 to 1856, which the Ottomans fought uh, uh, against the Russians. In fact, the Russians preempted the Ottomans and they sank their entire fleet at Sinop in the Black Sea. And the British and the French and the Italians were so worried that Russia might overtake Constantinople and the Bosphorus that they jumped to the aid of the Ottomans. So uh, certainly in, in English literature, we know of the Crimean War being made famous by Lord Tennyson's The Charge of the Light Brigade, the Battle of Balaclava, and so on. In the end, the Russians did not win the war, but certain exchanges of population had to take place. Sometimes I jokingly refer to the Crimean War as a, a, a battle, a war that started with a squabble over the keys to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem between Napoleon III of France and Tsar Nicholas I of Russia. And all this went back to uh, what was called the capitulations. Uh, the Sultan in Constantinople uh, gave what you could say a, fav a favorite trade agreement to different heads of state uh, throughout Europe. And over a long period of time, um, the capitulation given to the, the French was over matters related to the Catholics and the Catholic Church in the Middle East, and the Russians were given the rights over Orthodox matters in the empire. 
But over time, what happened in the Middle East was that Russian Orthodox monks began to encroach on the holdings of the Catholic Church. So they began to move in on various Catholic churches. And at a certain point, Napoleon III wanted to have the keys back. And the Russians didn't want to give them back to him. Uh, the Sultan in Constantinople agreed to give the keys back to the French, and the Russians were so angry that they sank the naval fleet in the Black Sea, as I said earlier. So we tend to think of the Crimean War because of the way in which logistics were developed, uh, medical and, and uh, uh, tactical uh, administration was managed or mismanaged, depending upon how you look at it. The Victoria Cross was awarded then. Florence Nightingale became famous for her nursing. Uh, Russian surgical skills and amputation became very well known. And news media uh, was the first of the live news media coverage, or you could say, in some cases, of fake news coverage. Um, in the way that certain events were, were covered at that time. But what we tend to forget about the Crimean War was that half a million Muslims, mainly Tatars from the Crimea, but also Muslims from the Ukraine and Georgia, were forced to sell up their land and leave, mainly to go into the Balkans, but also into Anatolia. And very shortly thereafter, they were followed by another half a million Cossacks, Circassians from Ossetia, um, uh, Circassia, Chechnya, and Dagestan. That was the Crimean War. Four years later, the Russians uh, were able to uh, uh, complete a further defeat uh, of the Caucasus region by um, surrounding and capturing the leader of uh, a reform movement in the Cherkas region, called Muridism. It was a mystic Sufi form of Islam, which had been very successful in the Caucasus because it focused on issues of social justice and equality. And the followers of Sheikh Shamil uh, had, for over several decades, become a thorn in the side of Russian orthodoxy. So with his defeat, many, many more Circassians and Chechnyans and Dagestani moved uh, out of the Caucasus uh, which these red arrows are showing, and from the Crimea into the Balkans and into central Anatolia. So this was another half a million Tatars, uh, Circassians, Chechens, altogether another million Muslims forced out of these borderlands in the 1860s. At the same time, Russia continued to support the nationalist or successionist movements in the Balkans. They had been very successful in promoting the successionist movement of the Greeks and the creation of the Kingdom of Greece in 1832. Um, and they continued uh, to uh, ferment unrest in the areas of Bulgaria, today Serbia, Romania, Bosnia, Herzegovina. And just show you an image of Shamil. His, his dress, if any of you have been to Jordan, you'll recognize, is very familiar to the imperial guard of the Hashemite throne in Jordan. The next major uh, conflict between the Ottomans and the Russians now takes us directly into greater Syria. And this was the Russian-Ottoman War of 1878. Um, which the Russians won, but in the Treaty of Berlin, they were forced to pull back 
from the borderlands that they had taken, basically in uh, in Romania and Moldavia. However, they insisted that they'd only pull back if all of the Circassian and Chechnyan in the Balkans were moved away from the border. And so this resulted in a second forced migration of Circassians, Abkhazi, uh, Chechnyans, and so on. Within one generation, just within 20 years, they were then moved out into Anatolia and into greater Syria. This was a, a number of about another million um, or you could say it's the same million that had been moved 20 years before, and now it was a million coming into the region, along with about 50,000 Jews that were escaping the pogroms in Russia and finding um, some kind of sanctuary in Palestine. The Ottomans, I don't want to say, were just big-hearted. They certainly instrumentalized this first wave of Circassians and Chechnyans, um, initially, there was a humanitarian effort, but then it was very much about redeveloping the southern provinces of the Ottoman Empire. So they uh, were very careful to separate the elite of the, of the Circassians and Chechnyans from the masses, and they allowed the elite to settle in the cities, but the rest were directed to settle in the frontier regions of Bilad Sham, a specifically placed between warring local social groups. So many of the Chechenian and the Circassians were placed between uh, warring Kurdish communities and Bedouin or Druze and Bedouin and so on. So the, 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 uh, you can't really make them out. Basically, this is the line of settlement for the Circassian, the Chechenian and uh, the Dagestani. There was a, an outlier near uh, Raqqa, a Chechenian who thought they could um, drain the malarial swamps on their own. Um, so the, the Ottomans, of course, uh, provided sanctuary, but they were uh, particularly interested in the economic development of this particular region. They wanted to revive the tax farming, and they decided that they also, it was the, they had now the technical know-how to start draining the swampland um, in many of these regions, uh, particularly the area around uh, Alexandretta, around parts of the Euphrates, and also in parts of Palestine. Just throw up an image of, uh, of the Circassians for you. I think one of the reasons that the that the Ottomans were so keen on using the Circassians effectively was. Uh, to tap into the supposed military prowess of the Circassians. So they put them between uh, warring communities, uh, but also their reputation for being very uh, hard workers, recognizing that they could persuade them uh, to work effectively in um, uh, re, um, re-establishing agriculture in areas that had been abandoned because of malaria. So how did the Ottomans manage the settlement and integration of about 4 million people over a period of 40 years? Well, they took a very decentralized approach. First of all, the Ottoman didn't make a very clear distinction between a refugee and a migrant. Uh, 
the term in Turkish, the muhajirin or muhajirin, is translated uh, by by uh, by some as refugee and by others as immigrant. However, you translate it, these groups coming into the Ottoman Empire, uh, the Ottomans were very quick to disperse them uh, as soon as possible to provincial areas, the rural countryside, and also to set out particular grounds for their protection. So all of these newcomers uh, were integrated as new subjects or citizens of the state. They were integrated, but they weren't assimilated into what was a multicultural empire, which the Ottomans wanted to preserve. So in 1857, the first code comes into effect to deal with refugees. The refugee code, it's sometimes called, or the immigrant immigration code, whereby immigrant families or refugee families arriving in the Ottoman Empire with only a minimum amount of capital were immediately given plots of land to farm and they were exempted from taxes and they were exempted from conscription in the army for periods of time. And I'll, I'll, I'll go over that. But more than that, they were promised freedom of religion and the freedom to construct their own places of worship. And if they remained within the what they called Romali, the, the European part of the empire, these dispensations were to last for six years. But if they moved into Anatolia and into greater Syria, these dispensations were to last for 12 years. A few years later, uh, the numbers were still climbing. Uh, the, the code became an actual uh, commission, and it began to operate under the Ministry of Trade. Basically, uh, this idea of improving tax farming and improving the development of the region. And even with these huge numbers coming in, the Ottomans still felt they could take more. They began advertising in the Western press. So they placed advertisements uh, in Europe, in the United States, in Russia, for anybody willing to come and to uh, uh, be, uh, become, uh, willing to become a subject of uh, the, the Sultan in uh, Constantinople, would be welcomed, would be given land, and so on. And thousands of non-Muslim farmers, uh, political and intellectual leaders from Hungary, uh, from Bohemia, from Poland, uh, and uh, also from Switzerland, um, came and took up these offers to uh, revive local agricultural sectors of the southern Arabian provinces of the empire. However, at the same time, this is the period, of course, after the Crimean War, you have the Red Cross, you have the Red Crescent uh, is founded, and you have um, a huge upswing in missionary activity, partially humanitarian, but partially also to convert people. And so the Ottoman Commission for the General Administration of Refugees uh, also kept a very close eye on the missionary activity, often in the guise of international aid that was coming into the empire. These communities, as they were being dispersed, and I think this is a, a, a really important point for me to make here uh, as I go on, as they were being dispersed, um, partially because of the Ottoman reform period, which created millas or millets, um, ethno-religious communities that were uh, had an element of self-rule um, revolving around their ecclesiastical religious leadership. 
uh, belonging was to your religious community, um, to the people you left behind. Um, and so it had a very uh, strong horizontal element rather than being tied to a physical place that you were finding yourself in. And this, this horizontal spread of attachments was very important then in recognizing what happens later on. Just a couple of images uh, of the uh, huge wave of uh, refugees that came into Constantinople in 1877 and 78, when as the first step, all the hospitals, the mosques, the, the, the churches, and also the takiyas, the religious schools, which included public soup kitchens, were opened for these uh, muhajar, refugee or migrant, whatever the term is that, um, uh, that you prefer. But what was beginning to happen is that basically you were seeing the uh, Muslim and Jewish refugees and migrants coming into the, the empire, but Christian refugees and immigrants generally were able to find refuge in the West. So there was a, a, a kind of division in terms of um, what community went where in seeking refuge. Uh, this is uh, another image from the same period of the mosque of, of San Sofia, which like so many others uh, became home to a great number of people over a period of a few months. In this case, there were 3,000 people living in uh, San Sofia with every inch of the floor uh, covered by them. The report from one doctor, which uh, is quite interesting, shows you how things don't change over time, he reported back saying that the refugees are all placed in transverse rows, squatting in family circles, having under them matting which is spread over the whole floor, and any article of bedding which they may have uh, is also added to that. In a few cases, there were some pots and pans, sometimes a hand mill or a uh, coffee roaster, and even a few cartwheels as a souvenir of the old country, meaning in this case, the Circassians. But... In the end, there was absolutely nothing for them to do but to gossip and to smoke. The Ottomans took one further step in 1877, 1888, and they turned the commission into a general administration for refugee affairs. And they had three goals, which they were very effective in implementing. First was that they allocated land for resettlement and for development in these underdeveloped, underpopulated areas, particularly of Bilad al-Sham. Secondly, they actually transported the refugees to these lands, sometimes giving them housing, sometimes seeds, sometimes plants, and sometimes even animals with which to begin starting a new life. And in cases when these uh, uh, Mahajir had nothing, they even supplied them with winter heating supplies, in some cases, monthly incomes until the first harvest. On top of that, what the Ottomans did, and this was a very successful principle of aiding the migrants, they charged the native communities um, to accept the immigrants as brothers. So, for example, in Damascus, each head of household in Damascus was charged one piastre in 1878 in order to assist the refugees and immigrants to settle in the local area. And the best I can find by using uh, Google, uh, the value of one piaster in 1878 is about $10 today. So uh, every household uh, put forward $10 and uh, that was used to help refugees and migrants settle locally. Uh, 
So that was the Circassians, which um, was where the Ottomans really developed uh, not only how to resettle and integrate people without uh, forcing them uh, behind fencing or uh, some of the other elements that we've seen in the 20th century, um, but also very heavily relying on the local communities to look after people until they got a head start and um, some of these notions of the duty uh, to be generous. After the Circassians, you have another huge wave of forced migrants, which began in the 1890s, and these were the Armenians. Um, not surprising, the Armenian homeland, Armenia, uh, overlaps tremendously with um, an area that is considered Kurdistan. And so as Muslims were moving into the area who had been uh, forced to evacuate uh, the, the border areas here, and here uh, ended up in parts of Anatolia. There were serious disturbances, um, many reasons for it uh, after the Armenian rebellion and later the massacre at Sassoon in 1894. The trickle then became a flood of people, Armenians trying to leave the area. And then between 1914 and 1915, as you know, the death marches, uh, which we know of as the Armenian genocide resulted. However, and these figures are contested, somewhere between half a million to three quarters of a million Armenians survived in greater Syria. Uh, perhaps one to two million were killed, but those who survived ended coming in. These are the blue arrows that you're seeing here and uh, finding uh, refuge uh, in places like Aleppo, uh, Damascus, um, Jerusalem, and so on throughout the Levant. But the Armenians didn't come only in one wave. Uh, unfortunately, because of, uh, you could say, the neocolonial politics involved in the carving up of this region of the world after World War I, there were two other waves, which we don't always talk about. There was a second wave in 1921 when uh, the French, who had encouraged Armenians to return to Cilicia, uh, realized that they couldn't hold Cilicia, and so another wave of Armenians fled uh, into uh, Syria in particular and into Lebanon. And then again in 1939, when uh, French uh, gave up the Hatay province of Syria, that's Alexandretta or Antioch, gave it up to Turkey, um, there was another huge wave of Armenians uh, who fled uh, and came into uh, Syria, but also into Lebanon, into the town of Anjar, which was uh, initially uh, an archaeological ruin of an Umayyad hunting lodge. Um, but many of these Armenians, of course, kept uh, their social relations with the Hatay alive. Uh, and in some ways, the Hatay remained a kind of microcos mi microcosm of, uh, of Syria today. The next wave of migrants to come into uh, Syria, and these are the yellow arrows that you're looking at, were a specific element of Kurds who, in the 1920s, did not want to live in the secular Kurdish Republic of uh, Mustafa Kemal or Kemal Ataturk. Uh, these were about 10,000 Kurds who fled into Syria um, to join the other Kurds of Syria who had been there since the 13th century, nearly two to three million. 
Um, but this wave of, uh, of Kurds uh, also were very unhappy at the abolition of the caliphate in 1923 and th therefore chose to come to a place where uh, their devotion uh, to uh, their religious beliefs would be um, not managed by the state. In the 1930s, when the British uh, gave up their mandate of Iraq, they left behind hundreds of thousands of Assyrian Christians in Iraq who had been part of the gendarmerie, and these also uh, flowed into Syria, following very similar lines as the Kurds. You had uh, other minorities uh, after uh, in 1947, 1948 as well. I'll come back to that. So this is an image of Sheikh Saeed. Uh, there has yet to be, I think, a, a good history of the Sheikh Saeed revolt, although I'll have to refer to Nalida. She might be able to point me in that direction. Um, but many of the Kurds uh, feared that they might be deported. Um, they feared that... Uh, Kamal Ataturk was uh, uh, going to transform the Kurds uh, of his country into mountain Kurds. Uh, and so there was uh, not only a religious element to that migration, but also uh, cultural demands of being able to maintain um, their identity as Kurds. Well, I'm sort of talking around... Uh, elements now that were occurring at the same time as the carve-up of the uh, southern provinces of the Ottoman Empire. And Syria, part of greater Syria, then became uh, the French-mandated state. Uh, and this is where many historians see, this is where Syria was formally, uh, you could say, recognized as a refuge state. Um, where its modern identity was tied inexorably to the waves of refugees who entered um, Syria, starting from the middle of the 19th century, but then, of course, uh, during the French period, uh, becoming fact. Uh, during this period, uh, the mandated government gave citizenship, uh, Syrian citizenship, to all Armenian refugees in the 1920s, to all Kurdish refugees in the 1920s, to all Assyrian Christians in the 1930s, and even into the 1940s uh, when we moved from the French-mandated state to the early um, uh, Republican uh, state, uh, it gave refuge or temporary protection to Palestinian refugees in 1948. Uh, but there's some very interesting scholarship uh, showing how under the the very brief six-month leadership of Colonel Husni Zaim, uh, there, there was a failure of negotiations to give the 100,000 Palestinians who came into Syria uh, citizenship and to have a definitive border with Israel, uh, a final peace, um, which ended with uh, Zaim's assassination. So overall, we see that from the 1850s to the 1890s, basically millions of Circassians and Chechens came into Syria, followed by Albanians and Kosovars between the end of the um, 19th century and uh, before the rise of the Bolshevik 
as Soviet Union. You have Armenians and Kurds, Assyrians and other Iraqis, Palestinians in several waves, um, and even into the beginning of the 21st century, uh, Iraqis uh, entering into Syria. Now, Syria has no commitment to the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, but it did sign the Casablanca Protocol of the Arab League in 1964 to provide refuge and temporary protection, uh, which it did even into the beginning of the 21st century. So between 2006-2007, you had, and again, the figures are, are, are not always that clear. There was a point when uh, it was suggested one to two million Iraqis entered Syria without visas. Probably the number is closer to one, 1.2 million. Um, they entered without visas, and following the principles that I believe were put into place by the Ottomans, they were given access to work as well as free health care and education. So they entered Syria as Arab brothers, and many remained in Syria, even today, um, in parts of the country that are controlled by the government. Uh, and uh, still today, somewhere in the region of 65 to 70% of Palestinian refugees still remain in Syria. They're integrated into the economy, and uh, they have, uh, certainly the Iraqis, sustainable livelihoods in the informal economy. The numbers are huge, and uh, there's not much point in my putting them into the context of the United Arab Emirates. I'll say a little bit about that in a minute, but if I put it into the EU context, and I think some of you know the EU or you've been to England at one point, the, the immensity of uh, this acceptance of numbers is almost as though the entire population of Scotland about 5 million, had poured into England seeking refuge from some kind of calamity and remained for six or seven years. That's how you could compare the acceptance of Iraqis in Syria before uh, 2011. So I pull it all together. You can see how I began by saying Syria is somehow in the middle of where so many forced migrants ended up. And over this 150 years, um, it not only received these huge numbers, but it learned to live with people, uh, with the other. And this is where this, uh, this uh, sense of local cosmopolitanism or local conviviality, uh, this recognition of people being a little bit different from you, but celebrating it rather than being afraid of it, I believe, emerged. And the refuge, the providing of refuge and sanctuary, here I'm, I'm quite convinced, but it's really a topic for another lecture, that it's a sense of social duty, this obligation to be hospitable to the stranger or to those less fortunate, uh, emerged from, from religious, but also from very strong social traditions to give, uh, to be generous, uh, while those who receive the generosity then find ways of responding with their obligation to give back. So these 19th and 20th century migrants somehow uh, became integrated in Syria. They created what I'm going to call uh, horizontal rather than vertical routes. Uh, borders were blurred. Uh, I just remind you that until 2005, there was no border between Syria and Lebanon. There was no need for a visa. And in fact, there are many villages that are on the anti-Lebanon mountains where people aren't really sure whether they were in Syria or, or in Lebanon. 
the, this kind of fuzzy borderland also went along with uh, these very strong horizontal ties uh, amongst many of those who had been forced into Syria in the past 100 to 150 years. So when we look at these, these maps, which I'm sure you've seen uh, a lot of, you see the density of the population of Syrians around the border. So... So here, of course, very, very dense. This is the Hatay province, which was transferred to Turkey in 1939. Uh, but also all along this border, these are people, uh, displaced Syrians, taking refuge amongst communities where they have some kind of relationship, some sort of social relationship, uh, maybe even a kinship tie. And it's very much the same case. Very much the same uh, for Jordan, most of the movement is here along the northern Jordanian border and Lebanon, I'll say a little bit more about in a minute. Neither Lebanon nor Jordan are parties to the 1951 uh, convention, the UN Convention uh, uh, for uh, the Status of Refugees, nor the 67 Protocol. Turkey is a party to the 51 convention, as well as the 67 protocol, but it has the reservation that it only regards uh, a responsibility to look after refugees from Europe. So this is a region, and looking at this map, where refugees have no rights as set out in international law. There's no protection um, within Lebanon, Syria, or Jordan, um, or Iraq. But what I want to turn to is all four of these countries are signatories of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And I'm going to talk about Article 14 in a minute. So the states of the Levant and the region as a whole have applied what I'm going to call variations on temporary protection as derived basically from social values and heritage of past centuries. Lebanon which doesn't recognize forced migrants from Syria as refugees. It only recognizes them as temporary workers. And before 2011, Lebanon had nearly half a million Syrian migrant workers in the agricultural and construction industry. These workers had come for many years and they had social networks developed over many decades. And so it's not surprising that today Lebanon has more than 1.1 million Syrians taking refuge in Lebanon. Many of them were seasonal workers, not all, but many of them were seasonal workers who brought their families. They're largely self-settled in Beirut and in the Baqa Valley. And Lebanon, of course, as you know, refused to allow the United Nations to set up refugee camps, uh, preferring them to be dispersed amongst local populations. Jordan also doesn't recognize forced migrants from Syria as refugees. They're just regarded as temporary guests. But then most Syrians in Jordan are from the neighboring rural communities of Dara. They've got very close tribal ties and kinship networks. Um, maybe 10% of the population of displaced Syrians in Jordan are in the UNHCR refugee camps, which are generally regarded as unpopular. Um, Turkey, which has now nearly 3 million uh, Syrians, about 10% of them, nearly a quarter of a million Syrians, are in Turkish 
camps. I'm going to call them temporary towns because, again, Turkey uh, did not accept the UN model for a refugee camp, but rather they installed something that I'm going to call a temporary town. Um, they spent a lot more money on each of these installations, uh, things such as paved roads, um, uh, toilets within the housing blocks, uh, uh, community centers with schools, supermarkets, laundromats, uh, beauty salons, temporary towns. Uh, when these were visited um, by the International Crisis Group, they labeled them as five-star installations. But that's not the point I want to make. In Turkey, the government has actually set out domestic law for displaced Syrians. Um, Erdogan is a little bit complicated. Uh, sometimes he's talking about providing citizenship to some Syrians who qualify, but citizenship that they could take without having to give up their citizen citizenship. But the point I want to make is that now it's taken a few years, uh, but both Turkey and Jordan have agreed now to permit Syrians uh, to apply for work permits so that they can enter the formal economy rather than remain in the informal one. However, most Syrians are not that keen on uh, the paperwork, nor the additional taxation that's involved if they move from the informal economy to the formal economy. So let me just go on and say a little bit more about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. As you know, the widow of Franklin Delano Roosevelt was asked to chair this commission to create a Universal Bill of Rights. Well, they decided that that terminology wasn't going to work. And in fact, she argued very forcefully for whatever the document was that they drew up, for it not to be a treaty, for it not to be something that um, uh, individual states were obliged to accept. And she argued that it would rather it would rather something that was a principle that governed how states acted, which was why it was in the end called a universal declaration. Uh, it's it's not a, a, a it doesn't have the the gravitas of a treaty, but it's promoting a principle uh, which states are meant to follow. Um, and the article that I referred to earlier was Article 14, which is this article that everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. Um, just as an aside, I, I think that certainly in Europe, uh, they've forgotten a lot of the lessons of World War II, uh, and they've made it very difficult to reach Europe. So if you get to Europe, you can ask for asylum, but getting there has generally become irregular, or you could say almost um, uh, illegal, uh, with uh, airline sanctions, uh, with um, these uh, various efforts to make sure that boats are pushed back, uh, it's become increasingly difficult to actually um, see this particular principle uh, put into application. So I'm going to just um, close up here and uh, just draw a couple of um, concluding remarks. What I've tried to show here is that understanding uh, History, even just a recent history, often helps to understand the way people act today. So recognizing how it was possible that Turkey, Lebanon, and Jordan could actually accommodate half a million 
displaced Syrians, uh, whereas in Europe, uh, the numbers are very small, although I, I think between 2011 and 2017 or December 2016, there are about a million asylum applications uh, in Europe, many of them still outstanding. But understanding uh, of uh, where people are today, how they got there, the kind of reception they have, um, means having uh, an understanding of the history, of the context, and the way that the broad horizontal ties uh, amongst those displaced from Syria um, has made it possible for, for them to uh, find a way of uh, getting um, access to some kind of temporary protection um, uh, across uh, the region as a whole. There's a high level accommodation of displaced Syrians in the region. And my argument has been throughout that it's based not on a, a right, a human right, as much as a duty, as a social duty to be generous to the stranger, which is reinforced by the Universal Declaration um, of Human Rights, but not so much as the Convention on the Status of Refugees, which uh, these countries have not signed. The United Arab Republic also fits into this category, as I understand from the statistics that I've been able to see. Here in the Emirates, there is a policy of maybe I'd say informal protection. And you see that in statistics where uh, a few years ago there were about 125,000 Syrians uh, working here. And now we know that the numbers of Syrians here are closer to a quarter of a million, 250,000. Um, this can really only come about if the government is not practicing return or what's called non-refoulement. Syrians who are arriving are at least being uh, permitted uh, to remain either until they decide to move on uh, or they have the opportunity uh, to return to Syria when the crisis ends. But there's been very little research here in the Gulf, but my, my sentiment is that probably we're going to find that in this part of the world, the duty to be generous, uh, karam, rather than any international rights-based protection, uh, underlines the response to the displaced from Syria, both in the, in the Levant, in the southern and eastern Mediterranean, uh, and probably in the Gulf once studies start to emerge um, to confirm or to to disprove that assertion that I've made. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.